Today's Bible reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7, and it's found on page 560 of your Bibles. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness, from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. G'day. Welcome. Uh, my name is Daniel. If this is your first time here, let me extend uh, my welcome to you. It's great that we can do Christmas together. Uh, I'm one of the uh, members of the church here. Let me pray for us as we open up God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together today, uh, this Christmas, to celebrate Jesus' birth and to hear from your Word. Please give us ears to hear what you are saying to us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want to start with a question. Uh, Why can we hope for things to be better? Why can we hope at all? Now many of us hope for different things. For some of us it's a better job, a new car, a new house. Uh, Some of us hope for things that are personal, a relationship to be restored. Um, some need to be, some wrongs to be forgiven. Maybe right now, what you're hoping for is a bit more specific. You're hoping for that Christmas present and you can't wait to get home to be able to open it up. Many of us hope. Last week, or two weeks ago, I was talking to a Bible translator and he was saying that in some cultures, the word hope doesn't really exist. It's almost impossible to translate. And that actually not all of us hope. And what we experience here in, in now, our lot in life, that's all we have. And that's some of us today. But if we think about life without hope, it's literally quite a bit hopeless, isn't it? And it's quite depressing in some ways, especially when things aren't going well. And it might be very easy for us uh, who do hope, we might be very quick to say, well, of course things will get better. You do need to have hope. But have we ever stopped to think about why? Why can we have hope? What confidence do we have? Why should we be able to hope? Because if you think about it, we're in a richer generation than any generation that's gone before us. We have more medical advances than any generation before us. We live longer than people before us. 
We have more and more and more. And, and yet we always have things that we want to hope for. Because if we look around, life really is tough, isn't it? I don't know what you're going through in your life. I'm sure that many of us are facing some hardship at this point in time. Dave just prayed for the fires. There's droughts. Wherever we look, there's corruption, there's pain, there's injustice, there's suffering, there's heartache. None of us wants life just to remain as it is, do we? But our question still remains. Why can we hope? Why should we hope? Why hope at all? What we're going to do today is we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, that passage that was read out for us, um, to to think about this. Now this is a, a passage, this passage was written 700 BC. And it's going to help us think about hope. But I think that might raise a question for us, doesn't it? Why would a writing from almost 3,000 years ago, why, why should we look at that for, for an explanation about hope? Why should this be relevant to us today, almost 3,000 years later? Well, the context of our passage helps us with it. And so let's first consider who this was written to. Um, you can see that the original receivers of this passage, of this prophecy, were in a dark time. You see, the context is darkness. Let me, let me see. Um, let me show you from verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You see, darkness is a biblical metaphor. It's talking about gloom. It's talking about anguish. It's talking about distress. And the people Isaiah was prophesying to, that was their existence. Their world was under threat. Dave mentioned it on Sunday. Assyria, a superpower, was pushing down and pressuring them. There was an invading army coming, trying to break into into Israel. And not just that, there was Egypt from the south pressuring them as well. And the two superpowers were trying to have a fight in their front yard. And there wasn't just an external problem. There was also civil unrest in, in, in Israel. Um, the north and the south, south were, 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 were civilly fighting. There was lots and lots of infighting. But there was also social unrest. The leaders of Israel were weak and confused. There was no confidence in them. They were corrupt. They didn't uphold justice. They didn't look after those who were vulnerable. And it's all summed up in the start of Isaiah. You can see from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4 on the screens where it says, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. And so within Israel, there's moral decay. There's international unrest. There's civil unrest. There's gloom. There's anguish and distress. There are people walking in deep darkness. Now, we might not think much of darkness in our world today. Um, We think darkness is just that scary thing that, that, you know, I tell my son Elijah... It's okay. You don't need to worry about the darkness. You don't need to be scared. 
We don't make much of darkness today. Hey, bud, you don't need to be scared of the dark. But the reason why we say that is because we don't really understand what darkness is. I remember feeling darkness once. Uh, Jess and I, we were, we were in rural Tasmania. We were on a holiday, on a road trip. And we, we ended up in this house that was all by itself. There weren't any houses on the other side. I couldn't see any other houses. In front of us was just the ocean. And there weren't any street lights either. And it was just dark. As the sun went down, it got darker and darker and darker. And it was just pitch black. Now I remember I had to go outside to get something from the car. And it sounds a bit silly. And I feel a bit embarrassed saying this. But I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified. As I stepped outside... I remember thinking to myself, if I scream, there will be no one who hears me. Now, I don't ever want to live in a rural place like that because of that experience. That darkness felt heavy, it felt isolating, and it felt petrifying. Now, you might be asking, well, why don't you just you know, use a torch or something? It doesn't deal with the root cause of the problem, does it? Because if you think about it, a torch is just a band-aid solution to the darkness. Because what that darkness really was, was the sun going down. And if that sun stayed down, and if it never came up again, life would cease to exist as we know it. Darkness is petrifying. And it's not just this literal darkness that's scary, is it? Because this passage is talking about a moral darkness. The depravity of our souls. And we pretend society is better and brighter than it used to be. We have human rights. We have social services. We have medical advances. But all of them are just band-aid solutions to our moral depravity. The secular world tells us, tells us that we've made progress. We've got progressive laws about euthanasia and abortion. But they're just a depraved marketing ploy about what progress really is. Because you don't have to think very hard, do you? To realize that deep down, underlying it all, there's a fundamental deep-seated problem with who we are. That even today, we are a people walking in deep darkness. We think we're past the dark ages, but we're not at all. Today we experience that same darkness from 3,000 years ago that Isaiah experienced. It's just packaged a little bit differently. And so what does this passage have to say to us about hope if we're a people in deep darkness? What solution does it have? Well, it says there's a light, doesn't it? That there will be certain joy and rejoicing. Let me read verse 2 again. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, what's happened? A light has dawned. Now count how much joy is in this next verse. You have enlarged the nation and increased 
their joy. They rejoice before you, as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Joy, 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 joy. Rejoice four times. That's emphatic. Isaiah, the writer of this passage, has said there is joy. There is certain joy. Now, how do we know that? Did you notice the the tense of the verbs in those verses? Remember, there are people walking in deep darkness and it's talking about a future joy. And so you expect Isaiah to talk about a future joy. But what does he say? In verse 2, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep, light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. All of those verbs, they're underlined on the screen, they're past tense. This joy, this light that's coming in the future is so certain that Isaiah is able to talk about it as if it has already happened. It's a bit like saying, consider it done, isn't it? If Jess asked me, can you please take out the rubbish, and I say, yeah, sure, take it, consider it done, it's not saying that I've already done it. I'm saying to Jess, you can be so certain that I'll take out the rubbish that you can pretend as if it's past tense. Consider it done. And that's what Isaiah is doing right here. Even though we're, we're in darkness, he says, you can be so certain of this joy that's coming, consider it done. And then he says, rejoice. Now that sounds great, that sounds fantastic. But is it realistic? I mean, there's always room for an optimist preaching in a gloomy time. Is it realistic? And even more, what about us in the 21st century? We're still in darkness, aren't we? That's what we said, that's what we've already seen. What's actually changed? Why can we believe? Why can we have confidence in this? Why can we, why can we hope? Why can we rejoice? Well, the ultimate reason that we can rejoice, did you see in verse 6, is because of a child. See how it begins with a four? That four is explaining the reason for our joy. Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. That's the reason for the hope. God is giving a son. And what do we learn about him? Let's keep reading. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now in many cultures, names carry meaning. They describe what a child or someone is going to do. Now I've heard of of someone called Harvard because his parents expected him to go to Harvard. That's a huge expectation, isn't it? The same sort of thing happened in Isaiah's day, in Isaiah's culture. A name doesn't just identify someone. A name tells us about who that person is and what they're going to do. And we see this child here. This child has four names. Four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's quickly look at them and understand what they mean. Wonderful counsellor. 
If you look through the Old Testament and you, and you look at the word wonderful, you'll quickly realize that doesn't mean wonderful in the way that we use it today. Oh, it's a wonderful day today. No. Wonderful means supernatural. It means astonishing. It means miraculous. And counselor, that's not simply someone I go to to help me fix my problems. A counselor has to do with wisdom, with insight, knowing what to do. And so this child, wonderful counselor, has supernatural wisdom. He's also called mighty God. That means he has power. He is divine. He can act on his supernatural wisdom. It won't just stay there in his head as something to, to, to grow his mind. No, his wonderful counsel can be lived out and enacted. I used to uh, work with some brilliant scientists and they came up with all these wonderful ideas and different uh, patents on, on all these new inventions. But they didn't have the power or the money to bring any of their inventions into the world. This wonderful counsellor is mighty God. And so he can act out his wisdom. Now this might sound dangerous to us. Is this, is this just going to end badly? No, because look at his third title. Everlasting Father. God is described as Israel's father as he brings them out of slavery from Egypt. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. And so as a father, this promised child cares. He cares for his people. He provides for them. He nourishes them. He leads them. It's such a contrast to Israel's leaders at the time. The people who were leading them into deep darkness. This child will lead them to peace. Did you see that in his fourth name? Prince of Peace. We can expect him to build a wonderful world, a wonderful kingdom, a new world order. Peace isn't just peace. If you think about it, peace means that you're not at war with each other. Peace means that you can settle in the land that you are in. Peace means that you can build up your crops and have stability. And peace means prosperity. So peace means blessings. So what's this child doing? His name's Wonderful Counselor. He has supernatural wisdom. He's mighty God. He has the power to act out his wisdom. Everlasting Father, he cares. Prince of Peace, as he establishes prosperity and blessings. There's some big expectations on this child, aren't there? Uh, but it makes sense. If, I, if, if this child is who he is, it makes sense that Isaiah calls us to rejoice. Because he's going to be so amazing. Of course you can rejoice in the dark times, regardless of how hopeless and horrible life looks. 
If this child is real, it, he gives us confidence. He gives us something to hope for. He will enable us to walk in the light. But what big shoes to fill? And if we look back through Israel's, if we look back through all of history, in many ways there are no kings who live up to this mark. No normal leader can fill these big, big shoes. You see, this God-given child, he's different, isn't he? He can't just be any human leader. And so it's very interesting that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 700 years after this passage was written, this passage was quoted about Jesus himself. This is from Matthew chapter 4 on the screen. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's right from our passage. Jesus is the one bringing in the light. Jesus is this God-given child who we have talked about. Jesus is the wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So right after Jesus has been identified with this promised child, what does it say in the very next sentence in Matthew? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You see, Jesus himself is establishing his kingdom. He is the confirmation of the hope that Isaiah is talking about, the rejoicing that Isaiah is so certain of, despite the darkness and gloom that Israel faces, is certain because Jesus has come. Jesus' coming, his birth that we celebrate today, is proof that we can rejoice. He is the reason why we can have hope, that we no longer need to dwell in a deep darkness. So we can rejoice, can't we? That's an obvious response, isn't it? Because in verse 7 of Isaiah, what does Jesus do? He establishes a forever kingdom. He's ushering in a new age. And as we meet him, as we think about Jesus, we can be certain that this prophecy from Isaiah is true. And that's why for for Christians, Christmas can be a time of joyful hope, can't it? Amidst the darkness of this world, in Jesus we see great light. I don't know about you, but for me, that means I love Christmas. We might have the stress of buying presents, wondering where the food's going to get cooked on time, whether everything's going to be wrapped up before the stores close, whether you're going to have the decorations up at, in the right place. But that's not what Christmas is about, is it? It's not about presents, it's not about food, it's not about decorations. Christmas isn't even about family. Christmas is remembering that this promised son has come. And so I love Christmas. Will you rejoice and have hope with me?
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who fulfills this prophecy from so long ago and who is the reason that we can rejoice and we can have hope. Father, this Christmas, lift our eyes uh, from all the stresses and struggles that we might face and help us to rejoice because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.